Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford. And I'm Nick Lozano. Today we've got a special guest with us, Ryan Deeds, who is going to tell us a little bit about himself as we embark on a discussion around data, technology, and leadership. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through who you are and uh, some of your background. Deep existential questions. I dig that. <laughs> you know. That's what we shoot for here. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm Ryan Deeds. I'm the VP of Data and Technology at Assurex Global. Um, what that really means is uh, we're trying to find that out, actually. But I spend a lot of time helping CIOs and CEOs figure out data, um, create data strategy, uh, try to understand how they drive um decisions and behaviors with data and how do they use it as a communication mechanism i've been in the uh kind of data analytics space for 15 16 years um i use sql and python as my primary um tools and i i'm very good on the microsoft i i'm very i I know microsoft uh bi stack fairly well (laughs) so that's great thank you well you know um I know that you've had a number of different roles in your uh, career that have been leadership oriented. Um, talk a little bit about you know what brought you up through the ranks, and uh, ultimately how has that continued to drive your passion of, of both technology as well as data. You know, it's funny when you when you talk about leadership. I, I think it's so much more than a title you know i've seen uh, i've seen ceos that cannot rally a flag and and drive behavior forward um and then i've seen you know a receptionist that has the heart and mind of of everybody in the office um and so you know from my perspective i've always followed the kind of servant leader um motive and I've always really tried to dig deep into the emotionality of the folks that I work with so they understand that I'm sincere and that I, I believe in them and I want to understand what what drives them to to be where they are and, and then how do we how do we help them move forward um, I think one of the the core things in anybody who's considered a leader and, and I, I'm very remiss to consider myself a leader I I, I like to think that I'm one opinion in many and sometimes people's opinions coincide with mine and then maybe we can do stuff together um you know i i i just feel like today leadership is not about the person that stands that the tallest it's the person who get, communicates the most effectively and the most sincerely and can help understand where we are today and where we're trying to go in a communication style um and then I've used data to underpin that in a lot of cases by showing employees where they stand today, where the corporation is headed, and what role do they play in the overall growth of that organization. And because when I think of data, I think of data as a employee engagement mechanism almost more than anything else. When you think about the core goal of data, you know, it's to help distill down what each member's contribution to the greater good is. And if you can help them quantify that and quantify the behaviors that drive that, they will they will aspire to that. I think the vast majority of our employees um, try to do the best they can and the better guidance that we can lead them, provide them, the better they'll do. And then somebody will say, oh, you're a leader. <laughs> you're like, I don't know about that. <laughs> 
Well, that's an awesome background, and and um, really appreciate your perspective on that. I, I resonate with a lot of the things that you mentioned there, um, in particular the idea that uh, leadership is an activity versus a title or a role, um, and you know the communication aspect of it I think is also critical. Um, similarly, I have worked with a number of leaders over the years who may be exceptional at. Uh, setting a strategic plan, but communicating that, uh, really getting the buy-in and the consensus from those who need to follow, uh, that has not always been um, a core strength of every leader that I've worked with. So um, that communication element is one of those, you know, I would rank it sort of as a high EQ, uh, high adaptive um, type of skill set that um, it, it certainly can be trained, but um, there are some people who are, I think, more naturally skilled in that area than others. And if for, they don't... For me, it's therapy, man. I, I went through therapy for like 20 years as a kid. And so, <laughs> like, I swear, that's like, I, I if my parents did anything, it was they sent me to a lot of therapy as a child, you know? And so, um, because I think there, we, we're seeing this new movement. It's, it's this authority list leadership where it's it's not leadership based on how much authority you present but how much consensus you can build and and make each individual understand why we're driving that way and what's in it for them um and then how do they move that way and you know i think that that's those are the leaders that i want to work with too if somebody asked you know that folks that understand how to really get at your heart and soul and the best ones that, that, that I've worked with absolutely do that. You always feel like, yeah, that person's in my corner. That's how I know it's a good mm -hmm. leader. Right. Oh, you know, yeah. and you're, you are the second guest of ours to say that you are a servant leader. So, I mean, that, that seems like that's a going trend here, right, Brian, I believe uh, Jensen Hendricks, who was our uh, uh, guest about SEO, he said he was a servant leader as well. And, and I know, um, what do you say uh, that Jocko was a huge influence on him? You know, the whole dichotomy leadership, the extreme ownership thing. So it's pretty interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, you know, and I think that um, you pick up nuggets from these books. And there's this book called The Fifth Discipline that talked about the unforeseen consequences of a decision that is made and how we lose the ability to track back root cause because we deal with the ripple effects of those decisions. And I think... I, you know, when I look at how we make decisions today in leadership roles, uh, ever since I've read that book, man, I'm always like trying to, to understand what problems am I going to cause by this? Yeah, I mean, because, you know, you may solve one problem, but you may s create five others. And so, yeah. and I think as you build consensus and as people can understand your motivation, you know, and then I preach, I preach judge on intent, not execution execution always gets screwed up. You know, it, you didn't mean to yell at that employee. You didn't mean to have, you know, have a bad day, but the, so I'm always trying to coach my people and, you know, myself to judge folks on intent instead of execution, because obviously I've failed oftentimes in execution. And so I think those are kind of core things. And then self-deprecation, you know, you, to me, you got to be able to, to understand your weaknesses and your flaws and uh, really drill into that. And so, and make fun of it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, certainly having that ability to have self-reflection as well as the self-deprecation, um, you know, that's, uh, that's another key trait that, um, uh, you know, some of us are better than others at being able to look in the mirror and, uh, and read it for what it is. Um, you know, those ripple effects um, that come from decision making, uh, again, that is something that I think comes with that higher EQ, that higher sense of um, holistic awareness. Uh, and that is also, to me, one of those really key leadership characteristics. And um, it's refreshing to hear someone, you know, reference uh, a book like you did that uh, has that sort of orientation. Uh, because honestly, um, particularly when you're dealing with the type of work environments that we do, where technology has an increasing role in every industry uh, that you can imagine, and there's greater and greater complexity that comes along with it. Um, there are downstream impacts that are potential with any decision uh, that is made, and to not have that holistic mindset uh, as a key driver uh, through that decision-making process, uh, I've seen come back to haunt um, many uh, different functional leaders who may think from beginning to end in, in their little domain, um, but they don't think of all of the other uh, potential uh, ramifications that um, making changes and decisions uh, can ultimately have within their environment. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's so weird because we have these tech leaders, you know, and, I, and I'd absolutely say, you know, I'm a, I'm a tech leader, um, but there's been a transition from technological strategic vision to, oh, now the corporation is kind of setting a strategy based on what you hope to bring or the scale that you hope to attain or profitability is tied back to uh, utilization. I mean, you know, it, we have been we have been thrust into this limelight now. Um, and I was lucky because early on firms put me in their executive leadership teams extremely early. You know, I think I was 27 when I first started being in executive leadership meetings. And so oftentimes I get CEOs that ask like, hey, how do we go find an IT person like you, you know, that understands the business? And I'm like, that person's probably sitting in your, in your closet, but maybe you never offered that role. Maybe you never trained that person up. Maybe that person never thought to, to that you they'd be accepted, um, you know, and so it, it takes two. It takes a an IT professional that wants to grow and then it takes an organization that's willing to help that person. And, you know, I've sitting through 16 years of freaking executive leadership meetings has really uh, changed the way that I can perceive technology and business problems and the whole nine. And so had I not been that, had I not been with those firms that were progressive and I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be whatever I am today. And so I've just been thankful and lucky that I landed where I did. And then I tried to maximize those opportunities as I could. And sometimes I failed and sometimes I did okay. I want to touch on something that you just mentioned there, Ryan. So the, I, I think having a culture of inquisitiveness is another, uh, you know, core trait to um, really having that path to discovery with some of your uh, hidden talent, you know, in your current workforce. Um, questions don't always get asked. And, you know, I think a lot of times folks 
tend to think of themselves in a very dynamic way, but others that they may work with in this very static, you know, it's you are whoever you were when you started at the organization tends to be the mindset that um, settles for a lot of folks. Uh, And that, that can, you know, back to the communication that can diminish uh, really mining for um, that hidden talent within your workforce. If, oh, you, yeah. if you don't take the time to ask the questions or really have um, all of that orientation around what a career development path can look like. Well, and I think it's changing so drastically today because everybody wants an innovation unit, right? Like that's like the thing, like everybody's all about it. We need an innovation unit. And, and really they have had an innovation unit for as long as they've been in business because their staff understands what they hate to do. And they've probably figured out ways to do it better, but the agency or the organization probably hasn't listened. And so once you don't listen two or three times, you you stop getting people to, to submit requests. And if you do listen and you don't act on it, it's not going to happen, you know? And so I think that absolutely, if the, the, if the leader of an organization figures out a path to out the, the end users pain points, they will have an unending list of things to innovate over. And as soon as they start to deliver on that and they, and and you hold somebody up and you say, Hey, this person created this solution and this is the result. And it's all them. All we did was help enable that vision to come true. Everybody's hand goes up and in a year, everybody's like, wow, you're the most innovative company we've ever seen. And you're just kind of sitting back like, I'm just solving their problems, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so how much of that is mentoring the current staff you have currently, kind of allowing them to take on uh, projects or different roles that they haven't done before and kind of allowing them to fail? Man, I mean, it's it's huge because it really, you you can't approach, it's very difficult to do that top down because to get top down buy-in and that is very hard. So what I did was just as the kind of technologist I am, I, I always tell my guys, you're going to be around those desks. I don't care if they're, if they, if they need help or not, because I don't want them to equate you with problems. So two or three times a day, you need to walk around the floor. You need to talk to people, talk about Mary's dog and Betty's cat and Bob's freaking son, you know, get human with them, build trust. Because as you do that, we stop getting equated with being the pro just the only time we ever show up is when there's an issue. And if they'll allow us to sit with them for a little while, you know, and if you sit with somebody for five hours and you start watching how they work and what they're fumbling with, um, they don't even know they're fumbling with it. Right. But they're just struggling with it. Well, you can come back and say, Hey man, what if we did this? What if we try this? Uh, and a lot of times they're very receptive because it's affecting just them. And so typically how, how I would approach it is always go to the account, ma- the, the kind of the lowest rung on the totem pole, the ones that are doing the most numerous amount of work figure out what they hated to do i would build small projects that would that would show hey this might work for you if they bought in and they could get five of their peers to use it we would then start iterating through that well once we did that two or three times now i mean that's when our innovative culture kind of was born and we could go to the ceo at that point and say this is what we're doing this is what innovation looks like this is this is really the future because you're doing you're you're 
creating employee engagement, employee empowerment. You're you're taking the stuff they hate away to do, um, and you're getting more efficient. And so it's a win-win across the board. And it's really about building trust, though. It has nothing to do with anything else. It, it's it's taking an idea that you know that you can do quickly providing some small POC on that, giving it back to them. And sometimes it would be in a day. Like I'd have a problem uh, on a Monday morning and by Tuesday afternoon, I was like, here's a, a very brief solution. What do you think? Use it and let's take a look at it. And that kind of speed of action changes the way that the, the corporation functions. I don't know of many organizations uh, that work as nimbly as what you just described, <laughs> um, but I, I, I do appreciate uh, that that is, you know, in terms of delivering effectiveness, um, that that's really uh, a, a critical skill set to develop if it's not something that's already uh, in your wheelhouse as a leader. No, absolutely. I mean, but I think it's, it's, it's all about, like you said, it's almost about worldview. How open to new are you as an individual and how set in your truth are you? I mean, my whole reality can shift tomorrow and really my best nights ever come from discussions where my truth is challenged and maybe I learned something new right? Like maybe I come away from this communication, a different person, my perception has been shifted. I live for those moments. And, you know, because I think that it's growth, it's growth in who we are as individuals. And so when you see leaders that are very locked into their myopic worldview, regardless of, of what it is, they're at a disadvantage. And so, you know, I, I think that openness to new is a huge, huge thing you look for in progressive leaders. You know, and I think you also, uh, you know, kind of touched on that when you were talking about if you're just solving some of the core issues of your workforce, um, then that's ultimately, you know, what's driving that innovative change. Some of those things are not uh, exclusive to whatever's, you know, being a challenge on the internal side. Some of this starts to factor out into more of those client facing uh, innovations that uh, are really, you know, trying to solve some of the bottlenecks um, from, you know, whoever's working at the desk and whoever they're serving uh, on the client end. I mean, no, I'm that? all day. I mean, think about this. This is the best project I ever, I probably ever had. I mean, the one that I feel like changed our organization fundamentally when I was at Crichton um, was uh, as this account manager named Brian said, Hey, there's gotta be a better way to get builders risk data. He told me that late on like a Tuesday night. I didn't, I had no awareness that he was struggling with that. So I went home and I was like data collection, you know, Googled it and up came a thing called form site. Well, I was like, okay, cool. He sent me the PDF. I, I went ahead and created the fields and form site. I mapped the answers back to the PDF and I sent it to him the next morning. I, you know, and I was like, Oh, what about this? And he was like dumbfounded. He was just blown away by it. And within like three months, man, we had had 200 forms created. We had clients using them on their own intranets because we would create like uh, incident tracking stuff. Um, and it, so, so you see this like evolution and then they started to understand what was possible. And, you know, I think if you can bring like a Zapier knowledge into your organization, they're going to understand that there is no problem that's unsolvable. It's just, how do we work the process to make it, make that problem be better, be more effective too often right now, people are just like, oh yeah, there's no solution to this. And so my whole goal was not so much specific technologies that has a limited ramification moreover 
I want to open your eyes to the possibilities of the world by showing you use cases for these different things. And then I want you to leverage your creativity to solve problems without me. Because that's 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 the leader, right? To, to be able to pass that on, that's where you get the impact. Oh, sure. I completely agree with you. Um, you. You know, and I know Brian have had had this conversation before that innovation doesn't necessarily mean technology. When people think innovation nowadays, they're like, okay, what cool technology is Google or Apple or Amazon going to do when innovation on a small scale could just be a business process or a use case? It's Maybe totally your, your end user, your customer is suffering from something and you can solve it very easily just by making it an easier business process. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think innovation is subjective. And I think it's a problem because I think a CEO of a, you know, $30 million firm looks at Elon Musk and says, wow, that's innovative. But he can't get electronic forms filled out. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. and, and so from my perspective, you know, innovation is it is a very specific to company kind of thing. And there's an innovational maturity that will come with it. But the main thing about that is is prompting individuals to be able to out their ideas on solutions and to be able to articulate problems effectively. Um, and those can be, you know, uh, very big programs or they can be, um, you know, just kind of agile processes, you know, that you have. But no, I, I actually give a presentation that talks about don't look outward for innovation look inward for problems. I mean, I, I may, I, and I use this term all the time, but I make my managers have the list of the top five soul sucking tasks that they have because that's innovation. If you can, if you can then look across the board and see all the different problems that you have um, and identify one that might have a systemic effect and you, that you solve that, well, dang, now you're innovative, right? I mean, you know, you do that two mm -hmm. or three times. And so, and you didn't have to come up with an app or an iPhone or use blockchain, you know, it, <laughs> What do you mean? Blockchain won't solve all our problems of the world? <laughs> no, man. I, I, I think it's so funny. Blockchain is just funny to me, man. <laughs> you and me both. I, I'm not going to touch that. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Well, on that note, let's pivot and uh, go a little deeper on the data side. Uh, so, you know, I know initially we had talked about, you know, really just touching on what are the top three foundational things related to having a an understanding of data um, that's going to be critical to, to leaders at all levels, not just technology leaders, but when when you're um, working with other leadership, trying to help them understand what are those foundational data elements that are critical to your business and can help drive, uh, maybe in this case, some innovation, um, what are those foundational pieces to your mind? I mean, first and foremost, I, I think we have to come to a consensus of what we hope to um, deliver with data, you know, because from my perspective, it is communication. That's when you're, you're leveraging data as a communication mechanism for something. Um, and once they understand that, you know, and, even, and they've experienced it. I mean, they've gone to a dashboard. They've looked at things. They've been communicated to via data. But I don't think they conceptualize it in the same way, you know. And so that's kind of the first thing is like we're using data to communicate you know, as we look through what we want to communicate, that's going to drive what we need to get out of our data, you know. Um, and then I try to bring, you know, a foundational understanding of the elements that tie back to those communication pieces. Um, you know, if, if it's 
if you have kind of a um, swaggy number that doesn't work in there that you need to true up and that's something they're leveraging all the time or if you have a look back number that they're trying to use in real time, you know, trying to understand the nuances of the data elements that match up with what they're trying to communicate is important because once that's done, then it's all about data correctness. How do we audit that effectively against, you know, normal limits? What does a data management strategy look like? How do we have the accountability in place to drive, you know, real-time audits of that information back to the end user? And I try to set an expectation of, of the time. Like, this is not an easy button kind of thing. This is a maybe 18-month process that's going to, that, that at, at, at that 18th month is when it really will start. You, you, you may be able to start netting some gain out of that. But the more planning that you put on the front end, discussing the data elements, what they mean, what they're driven to communicate, how they're audited, how they're, you know, what ties back and what are we missing from that? Um, those, that, those, that's where my discussions are always based. The unfortunate part, their discussions always want to be on what tool should I use to show the data? <laughs> right. It, it, I, I completely agree with you. And that's, that's the wrong conversation to have. <laughs> it drives me. And it really does. Yeah. Like I get a call like, Hey, we're looking at Domo. I'm like, what? Well, okay. Um, what are you trying you mean to do? That little Seven Eleven monster that eats everything. I, I mean, you know, I'm just <laughs> yeah. like, like yeah. You, you, I mean, what's the difference? Um, I, so yeah, just right. But yeah. the vendors don't do us any favors because the vendors pitch, "Hey, put our solution in place. You're going to see the data, and everything's going to work." And it, it's just not that way. Yeah, no one is selling a an 18 month timeline of boring soldiering work to get to <laughs> a, a starting point, and that is a key challenge from the communication perspective of being in a leadership role where you're trying to convey that message back to the business. Uh, that can be an incredibly hard sell. So help walk us through what is an iterative approach so that you can have some milestones along the way. So that you're celebrating successes it feels like there's progress and it's not just like you know a year and a half slog to get to effectiveness so it's funny because i actually have a timeline as i've been helping some of my companies because their expectations are hey we went out and bought this product we did this thing and now why don't why aren't we why isn't our revenue increasing <laughs> it's like, hold on. I mean, you guys are just starting. And so, I, and I told him, I was like, well, maybe I didn't set the expectation correctly for you, you know? Um, but I think that there, it, it's different for, so, for, for each organization because it depends on what they, where they are. But I think for me, step one is to, to almost identify, we're not using data at all, you know? We may think we are, but we are actually not using it strategically. We don't leverage, we, we use it for reports, but we don't use it as a focus mechanism to get everybody rowing in the same direction and to be able to identify key areas of, uh, that we could improve on, um, in whatever context that is. And, and I mean, that is a very big wake-up call to have that kind of discussion um, for a firm to realize that, you know, and it, and it doesn't come easy because oftentimes they're using reports and they'll tell you, no, our data is good. Then my question is always, well, how long does it take you to generate a report? Because typically if they say, well, it'll take four days. Well, four days is a lot of human intuition that goes into that report that's doing all the data correcting, right? And so I can kind of <laughs> drive back to that and say, look, 
the reason your automated stuff doesn't work and your human report does is because you don't have the intuition of the human that's doing the massaging in the tool that you're doing the visualizing in. So, and if, and if it's a four or five day thing, there's a ton of work to do because there's a lot of massaging going on that's locked into a human's brain and we have to change processes. But I think that is kind of the first like step of understanding, okay, so we're not using data, you know, um, and that's going to come in with each, each individual firm's timeline, you know, then I think the next one is, you know, we want to start using data, right? Like, okay, now we recognize we're not using it. And we, we think that there is some form of, uh, we know we can do better with it and, and we want to do it. And I think that's where a lot of firms are right now. And that's where they get lost. I mean, because everybody offers kind of easy solution. They want to solve a problem. They bring it in and they get burned by it. And they're like, oh my God, this is terrible. I mean, that's why I think, you know, between 2002 and 2010, you just had BI project after BI project fail over and over again. And it was because they kept just laying tools on top of crappy data. The expectation wasn't set effectively. And now they're a little more sophisticated. And they, I do see them being more reticent to just buy product. I get a lot of calls on it still, but they're way more willing to say, look, don't, don't do it. Use Excel. Let's, let's do data validation verification first. Um, then the next step is, you know, what once we identify that we want to start using data, then it's like, what problems can we solve with that data? You know, and as we look at it, is there, are there some big problems that we could solve? Are there small problems? How do we want to bucket that out? What do we think we want to leverage that for? Um, and I think that's another critical piece because so often people just think data is the magic thing. Like once I get data, all my problems will, will be resolved. And when I came into AssureX, you know, that was what all the firms said is, hey, we, we want we want data. We want AssureX to do a data project, something like that. And it made me real scared because what they see as a data project and what I visualize as a data project and what you can actually bring to fruition with multiple firms is very different and difficult. And so, um, you know, trying to explain that to them was a, was an interesting process. <laughs> Um, you know, then once you, once you can identify some of the problems that you have with data, now it's like, what data do we actually have access to? You know, what can we actually, um, use in our system? Can we identify elements that, that we want to use? Um, and that's, you know, and that's kind of you, the way I see it is you'd have your, you know, your problem at the top. And then in, in a line, you'd kind of write out what your data elements that you are going to leverage. Hey, this is the transaction date of, of the, the, the transaction. You know, this is what, when it happened. This is the amount. This is who the salesperson was. Um, what, those are the elements. So if you're doing a new sales report and you want to automate your sales report, then you would obviously have to go through and identify where are we capturing that data today and are we doing it effectively? Right. Do we have that? Um, the next, I mean, and there's, this is, and it's about a 13 step process as I see it. I mean, it's, a, it's a, <laughs> you know, and so for me, if you start this, you know, you're in, you're right now, you're like the eighth month, maybe, you know, if you're doing it, if you're doing and, and you, you might be experimenting with things and doing different stuff because now it's time to figure out how do we get to that data? Um, you know, if it's not being filled out correctly, how do we get it filled out correctly? You know, do we have to backfill that data? 
Um, but a lot of this discovery will take you through those questions and those processes. It's almost like a cyclical process too, right? Once once you hit that, you gotta you gotta iterate and go right back again too, and make sure that uh, you know, you're not being led down a, a false road. Well, and what I've always found with analytics is there is no end. You know, everybody wants to get more and more granular. They want more and more information as they start to be able to visualize stuff. I never, I, I've. I've never got more questions than when I first show something, right? Because like you show a visualization <laughs> that you've been working on for maybe three months and it's totally apparent what it says and you put it up there. Now they want to challenge everything, um, mm -hmm. which is fine because if you've built it correctly, you can validate those answers pretty rapidly. Um, but like when I came into Crichton, I was a two-year data strategy. You know, I had a two-year just to get a baseline benchmark of data. And that's what I saw. I mean, when I interviewed with them, I had a five-year strategy with them. But I mean, two of that was to get good quality data, identify what that was, what we were going to use it for, all the business rules that coincided with it. And that's a lot more work than anything else. I mean, because, and like I think, like you'd said, start small. Start with the smallest problem you can find, get your process of iteration down, and then you can tackle more pro problems as you move forward. And how much of that is just end user education? I, I know when I've deployed you know, any type of data analytics or visualization tool, sometimes there comes a, a process where you kind of have to educate people how to read statistical, you know, graphs and different charts, because sometimes they don't understand just even how to read, you know, the chart that you might have put together in a tableau. Well, I mean, so for me, what I, what, and again, I've been building role-based dashboards for users since 2005. So, I mean, I, I've, I've, a bit of experience trying to get my end user to buy in. And so what I've done is just, I did do stories, mm -hmm. you know, typically for my um, users, I, if they're a sales role or a service role, I'll say, this is where you were on January one. This is where you are today. These are the new clients that you have. These are the clients that you lost. These are the clients that got moved out. These are the clients that got moved in. You represent 22% of the agency overall and client count. You push 3% of the overall revenue. Your growth needs to be 8% this year. It's 5% right now. And so if you align it in a story, it's so much more palatable to me. Um, you know, obviously CFO reports, because my visualizations are very, very user specific. Who's mm -hmm. viewing this and what you, I, the thing I show a CFO, I would never show a CEO. You know, the CFO report is detailed, granular. It's going to get into everything. CEO is going to be a topical, pretty broad, easy to understand visualization that says, hey, you're doing good or you're doing bad, you know. Um but for the users, for the most part, like it, it, once Power BI came out, man, uh, they they grabbed onto that stuff so hard. But our analytics were deeply aligned with the problem sets that they had, and so um, I think when when that's the case as well, you have a lot less adoption issues. <laughs> you know that data literacy is a component of what I'm hearing here. So mm -hmm. you know the the first piece, Nick, to your point, I think is, uh, it's not just a matter of explanation. It's, it's really fundamentally changing the understanding at every level of the organization so that that data literacy is actually a component of how people are receiving and apprehending, uh, the information that you're providing to them. Yeah. And I mean, I do not think that any data project will work effectively unless you have real time audits shown back to the people that enter the data just won't, won't work. 
So in, in my in my dashboards, they would always have, uh, you know, 16 or 17 audits. And I mean, sometimes they would request them. And whenever uh, data that fell without outside of normal limits was hit, you know, then they would be have an indicator that they needed to go in and fix that problem, which ultimately trained them to not replicate the issue much quicker than an end of the month exception report. And so I, I, the dashboard strategies today hardly ever do that. Um, and, I, and I think it's the most critical thing because if you have, say that sales revenue is the number that has to be plugged in all the time. Well, if you have an audit that says, hey, look, you've got eight of these that are not filled in. And in three days, if you don't resolve this, it's going to go to your manager. You know, But if you take care of them, nobody will know. And if you take care of them in a timely manner for the next six months, you'll get a free PTO day. Well, now. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and that's how the data strategies that I've put in place have always been. It always starts with root elements that are audited and then shown back to the user that enters it. And over time, you see the error rate drastically decrease because they learn, because they don't want to screw up. I mean, they want to do it if they have something that helps them. And then they ultimately like a ton of different audits pushed to that because they feel like it's a secondary set of eyes over their shoulder that helps them move forward. You know, you just touched on two of the uh, uh, behavioral characteristics that I've been writing about in terms of what what type of finisher are you? <laughs> it's this latest post that I've de- been developing, and what you were just talking about there hits both of those sort of elements of the psychological profile, right? Some people are driven by ro- a reward structure, so getting the PTO day. Others are driven by avoidance, right? And it's whatever it is, I just don't want X to happen. And right. in this case, it's now this report's going to go to my manager if I don't get this stuff. So I, I love how you're able to identify getting both of those uh, psychological components baked into uh, what your approach is. I, I think it's ingenious. Well, and I think the other key part was the account, the, the, the folks on our, on our teams always would know that the data that was shown on the dashboards was what they were being judged on. Right. Like it wasn't the sole component, but it was a key component um, when we'd look at, you know, who's holding what water, who's carrying what weight. And once they understood that, if they had, you know, hey, if I have uh, $800,000 of service business this year uh, or, you know, man, it would be awesome if I get to 900,000 and you're showing them that in real time pretty much. And so, you know, it's not like like think about a non dashboard agency or group that loses a client. And you don't reflect that back every day and say, hey, you've lost 18 clients this year. You know, that's 14% higher than last year. You know, is there something that we should be aware of? You know, what's going on? Are you just having a bad run of luck? I mean, that kind of stuff communicates where you need them to be. And because you're also showing new business. So, I mean, again, I'm not, it's not a judgment, but it is an absolute reflection of reality um, of where they need to be. And if they trust that you're going to leverage that to, to create incentive programs, they are all over it, man. I mean, I, I, we did lose quite a few people. Uh, I think we lost 10 people that quit uh, over time after we brought the analytics in because the transparency that it provides is just ridiculous. Um, but, you know, I, the lions in an agency loved it, loved it. And that's who you want. And, you know, getting that command of understanding, uh, I think, goes back again to now it's something that is this interactive layer. Uh, within your business, right? It's not just 
give me a report. All of those oh, things no. that you just referenced, now there's, you know, that data literacy is driving the interaction with it, where it's seen as this is a component of how we do business. This is a component of how we make decisions. And once you've got that kind of fundamental understanding, in my experience, that's where you can make the transition into helping everyone fundamentally realize that this is just part of how we run business today. This is not a project that has a finish. This is a continuous cycle for us where it's ever evolving and, and improving. Well, and after and after a little while you don't have to because they they just do it. I mean the gen the, the Gen Z folks, the gen and the, the 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 millennials, these guys are actually pretty data literate because they've use metrics every day. How many likes do I have versus this mm -hmm. person? I mean, you know, my, my kid, my six-year-old knows YouTube likes, subscription rates. I mean, oh, yeah, they do. It, it's, it's data everywhere. And so I think it's going to be up to the companies to try to leverage that, that kind of behavior uh, going forward. I think that data literacy is not going to be a hard thing if we can – illustrate things. This is bad. This is a good, this equates to a like in your business. This equates to a not like, you know, <laughs> thumbs down. And so, I mean, I, and I think it's a really interesting time for analytics because we do have so many people that are so used to leveraging all kinds of analytics on social media. And I agree with you completely there. You know, the, the next generation coming up, um, like you said, you know, your six year old, I've seen, you know, that they all want to have YouTube channels where they unbox toys. And this is, like evidently some big craze that like every, you know, six year old wants to do because they're they're making tons of money. So they're already way ahead of, um, you know, some of the previous generations because they're already, you know, talking about exposure rates and like counts and impressions. And it's just so much more advanced. I feel like you just kind of need to to start somewhere now. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, man. Like we have, we do goals every year for the family and we sit down and we do, we review the goals from the last year and, and, and we put our goals forward for the new year. And so this year, you know, Tori, my six-year-old, she's like, my goal at the end of the year is to have a hundred followers on YouTube because she likes to stream. Yeah. She's a video game, like nut, bro. I mean, she just plays <laughs> just a ton of video games. And so we'll sit, in the six, sit next to each other for hours and she will stream this stuff and she'll be looking at the viewer analytics as it moves forward. So I have no idea what that does to these kids because they, she can learn. So that's the biggest difference here is they can learn so dang quick, man. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, my kid asked me a question about Roblox. I'm like, I don't know. And three minutes later, she's, <laughs> on YouTube, <laughs> looking up that answer. Right. <laughs> when I was a kid, if my dad was like, hey, this I don't know why the sky is blue. All right, cool. I'm going to go play in the mud, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's that difference between being, you know, a digital native and a digital nomad. They're, they're kind of digital natives. I mean, it's crazy. There's so many experience. And it's interesting because I have a 16 or a 17 year old now and a six year old. And there's a gigantic gap between their technical Ability. I mean, my 17-year-old's more technical because she's older, but my and Tori's going to be a damn nightmare, man. I mean, it's going to be crazy because, like, the stuff <laughs> that she does, like, I asked her to spell something. She, she had a spelling quiz, and I was like, spell tomorrow. And she was like, eh. Siri, how do you spell tomorrow? <laughs> like, no, no. Right. Well, that's that's what Ray Kurzweil has written about is the singularity, right? It's that 
that point that we are fast approaching where uh, human augmentation with uh, technology is it's just going to be a given it's part of how all of us will interact everywhere right oh, i am such a huge augmented reality fan man i mean and so you know i picked up a magic leap glasses dev kit i've been mm -hmm. playing playing with unity some with it because i see in the corporate world just a ton of utilization for that um and so yes i totally agree that you know ultimately we will have a hud that we're using to navigate life um and and we're you know we've seen different executions of that fail but when you look at the car like the cars today and how valuable that information is being right there in front of you that's coming it's going to be here and so i'm super i like you i don't know if you just saw where snapchat put out their new like augmented reality kind of uh kit for business and i mean <laughs> i i think that this stuff is going to be wild so yeah i definitely believe that by the time that tori's you know 20 she'll be all up in that thing man it, it, it's gonna be nuts <laughs> I think we probably still need to define Snapchat for um, some of the folks that I work with who are in executive leadership. I don't, I'm not sure they even know how it works. Well, <laughs> it, 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 if they don't, they should for sure, right? <laughs> so. Well, I think all the kids are on TikTok now. So, uh, it's, dude, uh, so and it's so scary. Like TikTok just scares the hell out of me, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, I, I'm on it because. Um, I, I like to experiment with new technology, but man, it is a scary, scary place, you know? <laughs> we'll define that a little bit. What's I, I have my own understanding of why I think it's scary, but I want to hear Well, anything on. that brings old men and young, scantily clad women together is scary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's ripe It's ripe for abuse. It, it permeates yeah. this, this show culture for women, I think. You know, the more I show, the more views I have, the more scantily clad. So it's it pushes the sexualization of women that drives me nuts and maybe it's because i'm a parent of two girls but i mean it's something i struggle with heavily and i see it all over the place and on tiktok it's it's like the it's the purest form of that that you can see today um because it's totally driven by in my opinion a lot of this this um youthful kind of sexuality that's happening and it sucks. Like, there's some real cool artists on there. There's some people that I follow, um, but I, it 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 is something that drives that behavior. And then doesn't that has you know older men on there as a father of young women that are on that platform? Uh, it, it's something that makes me nervous. <laughs> I don't know where to go next with that. <laughs> Let's talk about chat roulette. You guys remember that? No. <laughs> to me, TikTok's just another iteration of that, but it's on an app. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's uh, it. You know, if if you scroll through TikTok at all, obviously there, and you try to categorize in data what you see. Yeah. They, yeah. It, no. And Instagram's kind of the same way too. When you look at everything that's super popular, it, it is all the things, you know, the guys yeah. with six packs and, you know, that's the right. scantily clad, you know, ladies and everything. And it's, it's kind of going that way too. Yeah. And it's funny cause I never really got into IG. I've almost totally pulled off of Facebook um, from a personal standpoint. I really LinkedIn is like the only social network that I use now. Uh, and I, I'm on TikTok a little bit. And then when anything pops up, I get it for a, a little while just to play with it. 
Well, I know that you referenced uh, an influential book earlier on in our conversation, but I'm kind of curious, are there, uh, is, is there another book that uh, has been a difference maker for you as you've come up to the ranks as a, a leader in technology? That just sounds wrong. It just it, it doesn't resonate with me. But yes, um, <laughs> I, I think that though, though it, could, it could be a Kindle book. You know? the, well, no, the, the best book I've ever like the one that I've probably taken the most away from was Good to Great. You know, and it's cliche and yeah. and everybody's read it. But I mean, damn, every time I read that book, you can take something else away from it. You know, I believe in the core competency theory. There, there's so much about that book that I feel was accurate, and I love the data that they leveraged when they did the comparatives between those places then i also thought it was interesting as you read it and some of those places fall out from other competitors to be able to 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 look at that you know and so i love that i love malcolm gladwell stuff um i'm a historical nut and so i think there's a ton of business um stuff that you can learn from history just because of the strategies that are involved and so but good to great was probably the most influential that's great thank you nick what else you got for us I don't know. You stole my question, Ryan. So. <laughs> well, I'm sensitive to time. I know that you said you needed to scoot here uh, about now, Ryan. So I just I didn't want to uh, keep dragging us on. Um, no worries, man. I appreciate you guys having me on. I, it was a little wide ranging, but that's always how it kind of goes with me. So <laughs> that's what we were looking for, and you delivered. Well, there you go. It's all over the map, brother. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> So, well, Ryan, if people are uh, looking for you on social media or – I mean, I know you said you're on LinkedIn. So uh, where, where can they find you? Ryan Deeds on LinkedIn. That's the easiest. You know, that's – that's you'll, they'll find me. And I will answer them if they need – if they want to talk for the most part. <laughs> and, and you do have your own podcast as well called The Digital Broker? I do. I have a, a podcast called The Digital Broker where we talk about insurance agency operations stuff. And um, it's odd because I never thought that there would – it would – I would – there would be multiple podcasts about insurance agencies ever, and now there's a bunch of them. And so it's kind of a fun time. And uh, we have a pretty – I have a pretty good group of, like, followers that, that I, I dig. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what will uh, happen with that. But it's, it's been fun, and, and we're, we're about to hit our year anniversary, and so it's co cool stuff. It gets released on Tuesdays every morning at, like, 8 or something. <laughs> no, it's been cool to see your, your podcast grow. And I've seen on, you know, LinkedIn, it's like, oh, fi finally meeting uh, Ryan D from from the digital broker so it's it's been cool to see you guys grow that over Good, the past man. year yeah absolutely and it's great content as well so thank you for all you've delivered with that I try, guys. Well, I appreciate it, and I am. I've got to run and go get my kitties, so you guys have a good afternoon. All, All right. right. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs>